Hello, and welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, a show about issues concerning the energy industry. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is Head of Research and Content, Christine Richards. How are you today, Christine? I'm good. How are you, Dylan? I'm doing pretty good. I made sure to eat lunch before the podcast this time, so hopefully there won't be any long food-related tangents this time around. <laughs> I was actually going to ask about that, but then I didn't want to get us on a food-related tangent, so... yeah. We'll just yeah, leave it at here that. Here we are. Here <laughs> we are. And that other voice you heard was research analyst Aaron Hardick. How are you? I'm doing well, Dylan. I'm actually in Dallas. Um, that may be news to Christine because she doesn't really know where I am <laughs> half the time. But I'm in Dallas right now. So if we hear not one bark, but two barks, that is my mom's puppy, Phil. Um, Phil and Ralph get pretty loud, so I apologize in advance for any puppy interruptions. Okay, I, I couldn't. I couldn't think of a good follow-up joke, so we're just going to move right along. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, very sci-fi topic, and to help us dive into that, we have the CEO and founder of Spark Cognition. Uh, his new book is "The Sentient Machine: The Coming Age of Artificial Intelligence." Amir Hussein. Welcome, Amir. How are you? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Spark Cognition? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, my name is Amir Hussain, and I'm founder and CEO of an artificial intelligence company based in Austin, Texas, called Spark Cognition. Uh, Spark Cognition has been, uh, it was founded in mid-2013, but really has been on the market with a shipping product since early 2014. And uh, initially our focus was applying artificial intelligence to the energy and industrial markets. Um, and for the first two years or so, we remained exclusively focused on this space. Um, we felt that artificial intelligence could solve many of the maintenance and optimization and security challenges that uh, the energy industry in particular faces. So we developed um, a number of products uh, that address those challenges. And then more recently, in, in the last year or so, we've also expanded into two additional verticals where our technology actually plays very well. One is national security and defense, and the other is uh, financial services. So that's just a quick little recap on uh, Spark Cognition. As far as myself, I've been uh, in Austin since 1996. I came here to attend uh, UT Austin Computer Science, and uh, straight out of the PhD program, I'm a, I'm a PhD dropout. Uh, I would like to say proud PhD dropout, but unfortunately, um, my mother never lets me forget that I need to go back and do that degree even 20 years later. Um, but, but that said, uh, you know, straight out of UT, I uh, launched my first startup company, a software company, and uh, that company got acquired. I did another one that got acquired. And so uh, 20 years later, here I am with Spark Cognition. So the, one of the taglines for your book on Simon & Schuster, I'm looking at, it says that you, in the book, you answer the universal question of how we can live amidst the coming age of sentient machines and artificial intelligence and not only survive, but thrive. Now, sir, not only have I seen The Matrix, but I've also seen Terminator, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and WALL-E. So someone, how would you explain to someone like me why the coming age of artificial intelligence is something that I should look forward to and not build a bunker for? 
That's a great question. So much of the discourse around this topic has been shaped basically by either the fear-driven narrative of artificial intelligence in that Terminator scenario, um, and even uh, you know other films that have that that perhaps haven't used you know these robotic bodies that are literally shooting people dead, uh, but uh, you know a superior intelligence that in a very Machiavellian way uh, is able to sort of undermine human uh, hopes and ideals. Um, so that's one. Um, and then more recently, we've also seen another kind of uh, narrative around economic displacement, right? That artificial intelligence will come and will take all our jobs away. And then uh, you very correctly pointed out uh, the, the Wally scenario, which is that we become useless. Artificial intelligence does, in fact, um, take away all the jobs. We're still around, uh, but we, we become utterly useless. We lose all sense of purpose. So uh, my, uh, my argument in this book, and it's, uh, it's really a question of perspectives, of course. We don't really know when we will have artificial superintelligence or artificial general intelligence, you know, human-level intelligence. And we certainly don't know what a superior intelligence to our own will do decades hence. But nonetheless, um, this sort of uh, philosophical framework that says that we can't really uh, put the genie back in the bottle, uh, that scientific innovation in many ways is inevitable. And in the past, in history, we find that when um, you know one person or a society uncovers some scientific finding, even if that because of you know a, a, a lack of uh, communication speed in in the ancient past wasn't immediately shared with another society on the other end of the globe. Ultimately, that other society also discovered the same concept. For example, uh, you know I don't think there was one. Um, ancient man that was responsible for the discovery of fire. Uh, it was probably a discovery that happened at many places. So in that sense, uh, technology is, is inevitable. And I don't think that you can, you can ban these things, that you can stop these things, but I do think we can focus our attention on developing uh, what I refer to in this book and what's widely known as the artificial intelligence community as explainable AI or safe AI uh, mechanisms that allow us to deploy this kind of technology um, with a sense of confidence. And do we have all of the answers today? No, we don't. But bans certainly aren't an answer. I think redoubling our efforts in developing this kind of safe technology, um, if there are answers, we'll find them there. Right. So when it comes to safety, it's not always just... So maybe the things we're building aren't going to go back into the past and kill John Connor, but they might be used to help people steal identities or take down an electric grid. That's something that's that not only is possible, it's something that's happening. So what about, the, what about those concerns? So uh, I feel that at this stage, uh, I would like to define, um, you know, just a couple of, 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 of things here. So artificial intelligence broadly uh, can be thought of as what we call artificial narrow intelligence. In other words, uh, AI programs or capabilities that are really, really good at a specific task, for example, playing chess or playing Go or recognizing images um, or translating from one language to another, those are all narrow intelligence tasks because uh, you know, even though that sort of a program might beat the world's uh, you know, best grand champion at chess you, or grandmaster at chess, 
you're not going to have that program drive a car also, right? So those are examples of narrow intelligence. And then there's artificial general intelligence, which is usually thought to be this future AI that will achieve human parity, right? So today, we have artificial narrow intelligence capabilities. In certain areas, AI can outperform humans, but it isn't imbued with a sense of purpose. It's not going and doing that on its own. It doesn't have a, a drive, if you will, that um, enables it to go and fulfill some sort of a goal or some sort of a purpose. That drive or that impetus comes from a human being. So the question is, if in the near term we're concerned about the uh, negative uses of artificial narrow intelligence, the negativity or the malevolence is really being provided by human um, guidance. You know uh, that, that that malevolence is not something that the artificial intelligence is coming up with. It's it's a human input to this process, and then you can deconstruct that question and say, well, well how is that any different to Kim Jong Un and nuclear weapons? How is that any different to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and perhaps you know, some chemical weapons from the old Iraqi stockpile that he might have his hands on or the ISIS organization might have his hand, um, their hands on? So there the question then becomes a broader question of what about human malevolence and technology, but that's a question that we have to deal with today and what we have decided as a society is we won't put curbs on technology, we won't stop developing technology, um, we'll just try and police it as best as we can, and we'll try and lessen the motivations in society that would create the kind of malevolence that would abuse this technology. It's incredibly fascinating. I mean, when I think of AI, I think of the Facebook, the videos that come up on my Facebook newsfeed of these um, robots that have been built, you know, out on, on the other side of the world. And I think I saw a video yesterday where there was like a, a press conference with this new AI robot and she was answering the questions as if she was a human being. But what led you to say, all right, here's this technology, here's artificial intelligence. I'm going to apply it to an industry and t just really take it into an industry and create efficiencies using this new technology. What really led you to do that? Yeah, so, um, so first of all, you know, I've been fascinated with artificial intelligence since a very young age. Uh, I've actively been working in this field since I was a teenager. I published my first IEEE AI paper when I was, um, uh, I wrote it when I was 15, it got published when I was 16. So I've been really focused in this area for a long time. Um, the, from a commercial standpoint, the timing to actually you know, productize an AI product and, and go out and um, generate some business traction around it, uh, that timing hasn't been great in yesteryear. But um, around 2012, end of 2012 and 2013, I saw that that was going to change because data was becoming available. Uh, sensors were being installed that were capturing all of this data. There were a lot of algorithmic challenges in the field of computer science, particularly with machine learning that had been addressed and learning had become far more efficient. Um, the, the speed at which these computers were operating and the amount of intelligence that was available in the cloud with uh, things like Amazon AWS and Microsoft Azure and you know, cloud uh, data centers like that, um, that, that made the kind of computational power that an AI researcher really needed to solve meaningful problems, it made that broadly available. 
So there was this underlying sort of technological and data availability um, you know, scenario that was playing out. And then in general, a few years ago in particular, you'll remember that there was a lot of discussion around alternate energy. You know, oil prices had spiked. And um, uh, just prior to that, there were books such as The End of Oil being you know, written and uh, what we would do <clears throat> when fossil fuels were no longer available. Um, in the last few years, there's really been a revolution in the energy space, but um, that has happened only because we sort of reached a kind of economic precipice, you know, uh, with the, the kinds of prices and the underlying, um, I think, geopolitical tension that was associated with continued leverage of fossil fuels at the rate that we were using them as, as humanity uh, in, in just a decade ago, in fact. So a lot of this uh, idea around, well, now that the technology is there, now that the data is there, why wouldn't we go solve problems in an industry that can truly make, where we can truly make a difference and, and in fact, solve problems for things like, you know, um, the efficiency of wind um, power generation or the eff efficiency of solar arrays or improving the safety in nuclear contexts. Uh, and we found that this technology had applications in all of these areas. Uh, we went out and we validated this with very large utilities where we had relationships based on, on um, you know, prior engagements and, and friendships there. And very quickly we saw that our hypothesis was, uh, was being validated. And, and then we sort of just doubled down. I would imagine that not everyone you have come to with this idea is completely receptive of it, right? Like, have you ever had someone look at you and just say, dude, you're crazy? That's been probably the most frequent thing that people have said to me uh, over the years, many decades, and that doesn't even have anything to do with spark cognition, really. But, um, but yes, of course. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, one of our first conversations with a very large partner. And, you know, the, the core of our technology is built around this concept of automated model building. The idea is that these algorithms, you can just expose them to data, and you don't have to actually explain to the algorithms what the data is about. I mean, is it coming from a pump? Is it coming from a turbine? Uh, is it coming from something else? The algorithms kind of build models autonomously, and they're able to reason over those models and predict failure and predict what kind of failure. So when we were going out initially and explaining this concept to um, some of our large partners, they, they absolutely had that reaction. Uh, because it just sounds so incredible. Um, and uh, the, the only way to work through those scenarios with bleeding-edge technology is to is essentially to, to prove that you're right. And now, luckily, we had enough of a, sort of a trust equation built up uh, with some of these partners that we got that chance. They gave us some data to run these algorithms and, in fact, prove in reality that what we were suggesting uh, would, would, would be uh, the outcome. And we proved that uh, this technology works. And that's how we got that chance. So um, yeah, the initial reaction to a lot of AI capabilities is initial disbelief. Um, and then when you start seeing the results, suddenly you shift into this, where else can I use it? And it sort of becomes, you, know, you, you move from skeptic to figuring out how to leverage it in other parts of your business. And luckily, we're at that stage now with a large number of our customers. A question I have is, is how do you go from that specific uh, project or, you know, 
pilot project to really developing that that full strategy. Um, something that that I was at earlier this week, an event. It was it was called Cloud for Utilities, and and we there we explored cloud technologies, and most of the utilities there. Um, you know, had deployed one project, you know, or a couple projects uh, within the cloud and we're having success. But there was that big question of, okay, well, you know, we're having success, but how do we sort of build it into this cohesive strategy and something that will really serve our organization, you know, well across a lot of different business units? What are you seeing in terms of the strategy around um, AI for utilities? I mean, how how far along are they with with kind of, understanding how it could impact their their whole organization well i think there's a long way to go not just for utilities but for um all types of companies i mean you know i refer to this century that we're living in at at, at present as the ai century uh, this is a hundred a hundred year play uh the transformation of society and migration from biological mind to synthetic mind is not something that will happen in six months. But at a practical level, obviously startups and companies need to pay the bills um, and clients, customers need to realize value. So I think the, the, the balance there is to speak to the potential of the technology and to showcase that potential, uh, just like the example that I was citing earlier, um, showing that you can cut a lot of costs by having models built auto autonomously uh, and proving that that works, but then also tying that back to real problems that they have now. Um, and so if, for example, a particular kind of failure prediction uh, is an issue because they don't have enough of a window of warning to actually do something um, you know, reasonable about that forewarning, uh, then, and if you feel you can solve that problem, then focus on that problem and solve it in the way that the utility or your client needs it to be solved. Um, there are similar examples of, of very narrow, very focused, specific problems in oil and gas. And so you go from the broad potential of this technology all across the enterprise, all across the planet, to this really, really narrow problem that they have now where it's not really about AI, it's just about having a better solution. And once you do that, you slowly, uh, application at a time, start to build that trust. Now, where are we now? Look, a lot of these utilities are obviously very complex organizations, uh, the largest of them, and in fact, the largest utility in the US and the second largest utility in the US are both customers of Spark Cognition. But these are organizations that have, you know, 100 plus sites. And um, they've got a lot of complex uh, equipment worth hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars sometimes at, at each one of these sites. So you, you, you've got to start somewhere, but then you've got to show that very rapidly you can start to migrate that capability to the other ancillary problems that uh, are, are also causing them issues, but they don't currently have viable solutions. And, and that is, you know, that is just the nature of, of selling new technology. You, you've got to prove it in a, in a limited context. You've then got to solve a business problem that's a narrow business problem that they can measure ROI, they can see the value. And then you've got to draw out the roadmap that shows them that this is not just a one-off, it's something that can solve the next dozen problems for them as well. And if you do that well, 
then you then you then you get a real customer that's a real partner that's going to work with you and we've been lucky enough to have many of those now Christine, you know, we talk a lot about, especially when we go to, um, you know, MSGS, Municipal Smart Grid Summit, and RSGS, uh, about we survey the attendees there about certain technologies, and we ask them about AI and machine learning. Um, and I think in the ones that we went to this year, there was a very low understanding of what AI and machine learning was. Would, would you say that's correct, Christine? You know, I've actually, I'm going to interrupt. I've got a, I've got a, da- a couple data points right here. Now, this, this is actually from an, infor- an infographic that we did last year uh, about machine learning and uh, IoT. But on the machine learning side, um, the interesting, there's some interesting numbers. Uh, for one thing, 68% of respondents, and these were all kinds of utilities. They were IOUs, uh, munis, uh, co-ops. So we interviewed all these different types of utilities, and the data points we got were 68% of respondents believed that machine learning was an important technology trend. I understand that's only one part of AI, but it's a good good starting point. But 68% believed it was an important technology trend. 48% said uh, it's critical to my company's future success. So one of those attitudes where it's like, well, it's a good idea, but maybe not in my backyard. and then. Only 20% said they have a good understanding of what machine learning can do for them. And only 20% said they're already using those technologies. And I would hazard a guess that those 20%, those two sets of 20% have a big overlap. So I guess, is that consistent with what you guys are seeing at these events? And is that indicative of a need of education or some type of stubbornness? I think it's it's what Amir had talked about a little bit earlier around, you know, artificial intelligence as this as this big picture idea. Uh, it could cover so many different things that a lot of times people have difficulty really grasping how it could apply to their organizations. Now, if you start bringing it in, you know, around specific problems or issues that people are having, then they start to really, you know, understand the. That it does have value and 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 start to understand it in in that um, specific application. So, I mean, I think it's a thing where people just they they see the potential and it's like, okay, well, how does it really apply to my organization, right? Uh, that that's where I think people have a lot of a lot of issues. I also think what's interesting is the comparison or just talking about the aging workforce in general within utilities and the people, um, because Amir mentioned, you know, you either go to the guy who's dealing with the maintenance, who has the problem. What is, what factor or how influential is the aging workforce into, or how influential is the aging workforce on adopting AI you know, across organizations, like, what does it mean when millennials really start to move into those positions? And, you know, we're more receptive to newer technologies, because that's what we grew up on, right? It's just technology all the time for everything. What is the what kind of play does the aging workforce have on this widespread adoption of AI? Well, uh, you know, so, so obviously, what's happened here is that the kinds of expertise that you need in order to maintain uh, what is essentially an industrial infrastructure. Um, you know, skills like mechanical engineering and so on and so forth. And in this country a few decades ago, as we started to 
outsource and offshore um, manufacturing jobs and, and uh, just generally um, mechanical jobs. Obviously, the enrollment in mechanical engineering departments wasn't going to be what it used to be, and our output of those uh, experts uh, w diminished somewhat because there weren't enough jobs. And now, as we look at sort of the, the, the last uh, batch, uh, the last large batch of these mechanical engineers, vibration analysts, maintenance experts, et cetera, now as they age and as they start to leave the workforce, um, you're going to certainly have a skills gap. Uh, by the way, this skills gap isn't just present in energy. There's actually a number of other uh, sectors, including aviation, where a similar skills gap for the same underlying reasons, essentially a lack of mechanical engineers, if you will, um, th that, that skills gap is also developing. So in all such organizations, there is the potential to leverage artificial intelligence uh, to do two important things. One, to augment the new entrants in the workforce, the millennials, as you're referring to them, um, folks that are comfortable with technology but may not have the same level of capability as it pertains to the domain specifics of you know, vibration analysis or mechanical engineering and, and things of that nature. Um, so there, for example, predictive systems can help identify underlying causes that it would take you know, a 25-year veteran of vibration analysis to uncover. So that's an example of augmentation, where the system can give you better clues than you could have, have acted on on your own. The second area, which I think is equally important, is how artificial intelligence, particularly AI that can deal with unstructured information, natural language, um, you know, notes that people write or uh, reports that people write for human consumption, how AI can take all of that and, and retain that knowledge in a way that allows the wisdom of the past, if you will, the wisdom of the outgoing workforce to become um, an ever-present element of value within the company. How do you retain knowledge? And AI, particularly in dealing with unstructured information, can really help with that. So at the Smart Grid Summit events, what I've been doing recently uh, is, is having everyone who's in the room stand up and line up according to how long they've been in the industry. And it's, it's fascinating to see the people spread out across the room because there's usually a huge group of people right around the 20 to 25-year um, you know, time frame of how long they've been in the industry. And, and it's usually skewed, you know, past that um, into the fact that, you know, a lot of the people there in the room have, you know, over 25 years of experience. We were at one event where um, the person who is the most experienced had actually been in the industry 55 years. So um, it, it is, you know, something that uh, was very tangible as we were going to these events and asking people to do that, you know, just, just how, you know, how old the workforce is and, and how a lot of these people who are in utilities are, are nearing that um, retirement age or, in, you know, an age where they, you know, they'll, they'll probably scale back on the work that they do. Uh, what is exciting about those events, though, is to see the, the younger generations who are coming in. And I think, like Aaron said, they're very excited about new technologies, you know, new ways of doing things. And as we've we've talked with the utilities, a lot of them have said, hey, we've actually been able to implement 
some of these newer technologies and changes, you know, just by having this younger workforce in place who's who's more open to to these ideas and and making that transformation happen. Yeah, Christine, we all know how much you love to try to make other people work whenever you have to work. <laughs> but at the, the last event that we did that at, um, Smart Water Summit, which was just like a week and a half ago, when you had the people line up, I guess I was assuming that that median like time frame for the people standing in the middle of the room, I was thinking, you know, like these people are probably going to be from eight to 12 years. But like you said, come to find out that median is really like 16, 17 years. Um, and then we had the one guy who you asked him how many years he had been in the industry. And then he gave you the year that he started and then forced you to do math on stage. <laughs> uh, but it, it was just very eye-opening to see how old um, or how long a lot of these people have been in the industry. I think there's something in that's funnily relatable between the idea of the of the younger workforce and the idea of AI, and that's the idea of uh, op, of obsolescence. You know, uh, I mean, I remember I remember back in 2010 when the when IBM debuted their Watson computer by having it beat Brad Rutter and uh, uh, crap, what's the other guy's name? Ken Jennings. Beat Brad Rutter and Ken Jennings at Jeopardy, but it just crushed them. Brad, and one of them in their final Jeopardy answer wrote kind of jokingly, I for one welcome our robot overlords. Uh, but it, 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 that, that sort of thing comes to the notion of, you know, will, you know, can AI make humans useless? The Wally example. But the, you can kind of have the same idea of does the younger workforce, you know, their understanding of technology kind of, make these old notions and these old ways of doing things that these people have been doing for 50 or so years completely obsolete. I mean, and the answer is probably no. There are some things that there's no replacement for. There's some things you can learn in 40 years that you won't know coming out of the chute, no matter what kind of technology you've adopted. And that's why I think that the marriage of the, of the old and the new, both in terms of people and in terms of technology, is kind of the way to have it have a have a more efficient more functioning system than just scrapping things well also you know i think this begs the the the, the larger question of what do we mean by useless um, and this is one of the topics that i also take up in in the book the sentient machine which is that if you if you think about our sense of identity um you know humans societies uh, we still call ourselves by the last names that refer to our ancient professions, um, you know, porter and smith and goldsmith and farmer and so on. Um, so the, the economic output that we produce is so intrinsically tied to our sense of worth and identity um, that this has sort of become a larger cultural fiction, right? That if we are not producing what is considered now, to be something of economic value. And I use the word now and I stress it because over time that has changed. Um, what is worth something that has changed over time, over centuries. But with our, within our current economic context, if we're not producing something of economic value, then we are useless. What does that mean? 
Uh, and obviously, as a government, as a society, we'll have to begin to address these questions. There are close to 3 million drivers of various different kinds of vehicles just in the U.S. Uh, there are 1.2 million traffic-related deaths globally. Um, autonomous cars and autonomous technologies are developing very quickly. You put these three facts together, the, the situation that comes out of this is that in order to save lives, we should use autonomous driving technologies, which are rapidly being developed. And when we do that, while on the one hand we will be saving a large number of, of lives, we will then, on the other hand, be jeopardizing the livelihood of three million people. And some of them will be the older members of the workforce. A 56-year-old truck driver that has, been, that has had a wonderful career, has never had an accident, was always on time, and then is suddenly being told that, you know, for safety or for uh, economic reasons, we're moving to autonomous uh, transport. But don't worry, you can go back to school and re-educate yourself as a, a bioengineer. Obviously, that's not going to happen. So society, uh, governments at some stage need to step in and assist with this. There has to be somewhat of a, a renewed social contract that people that do, uh, but that doesn't uh, you know, jeopardize the onward march of technology. Getting quite philosophical here on Z Prime on the Grid. I think I, I mean, I read a lot of history books because I'm I'm a history nerd. I like to look to the future, but also think about the past um, as, you know, as we look to what's next. And I think it's always fascinating to see the types of jobs that existed, you know, many, many decades ago. And, you know, I mean, you think about things from, you know, telephone operators to, you know, people who were you know, typing up letters that, that needed to be sent out for, for different reasons. Um, and, you know, I mean, things are just, they're always changing. Um, and it, it, I mean, I think this is, we're in it right now. So we're experiencing it right now. And, and we have our frame of how we view the world. Um, but I mean, this is, this is nothing, it's nothing new that, you know, this, this change is going to happen and these things are going to take place. We're just, we're just the ones who are experiencing it right now. Uh, Amir, I have a, an important question for you. I've, I've been informed that you are something of a Star Trek fan. So the, the first thing I have to ask is, uh, do you prefer the original series or the next generation? I'm not even going to mentioned Voyager, Deep Space Nine? Well, uh, of the two choices that you've given me, certainly TNG. Um, I, love, uh, I love TNG, and uh, not that I don't like the original series, but, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that, that question that every Trekkie gets asked, who's your favorite captain? Uh, for me, it's certainly Jean-Luc Picard. Well, that's good, because uh, that lets me more easily get in, into another question. And this is going to, I apologize to our listeners, this might get a little nerdy here. But uh, so then you're, of course, familiar with uh, both Commander Data and Lieutenant Geordi LaForge, who are both central characters who, uh, you know, utilize uh, technology in different kinds of ways. So that that show that and what I think that is cool about those two characters is they both show that uh, even with major advances in technology, humanity becomes increasingly hard to define, will never be obsolete. That uh, innate, you know, humans' innate ability to 
communicate in ways that only we can, in subtle ways that only we can, is in is is in and of itself one one of our best skills. I'm I'm getting off topic, but the point is that Lieutenant uh, Commander Data is 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 an artificial intelligence, and he's able to he's able to perform tasks at at speeds and with precision that humans are never able to do. But he's kind of inefficient when it comes to any kind of role in communications or uh, or, or split se- or split second decision making that has serious consequences and Jordy LaForge uses uh he, he uses he's blind and he uses uh technology he uses technology to see but he's not reliant on it because his true potential comes from his brain and as you said Jean-Luc Picard is is always able to make the right decision even if it's not even if it's not always the best decision because he is a very cultured person and draws on basically centuries of human experience to be able to guide guide the moral compass of this crew, uh, I guess there's not a question there, but I'm interested in, in your take based sure. on your on that. No, that's an interesting observation. Uh, but I, you know, what I'll say is that uh, the thing that I find fascinating about Gene Roddenberry's uh, vision with Star Trek is really imagining uh, a society that has. Uh, seen a level of technological development where they don't really have to work for a living, right? I mean, one of the things about Star Trek is that uh, there's hardly any mention of money. Uh, there's really no uh, job that you do in order to survive. Uh, you know, you, you're doing jobs because you like doing those jobs uh, for the most part. Um, and so uh, that's that's something that I think is 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 a phenomenon that we will encounter soon. Um, the level of technology that we have now, if organized properly, is capable of fulfilling many of our needs, most of our needs. And that um, economic excess, that uh, economic reward that flows from advanced technology should be reaped by society. And one of the ways in which it can be reaped is to allow people to explore, to allow people to learn. And the greatest thing about Star Trek is that it is a society within which the thirst for knowledge, the um, exploration, um, education, uh, those things are of intrinsic value. I mean, what is Captain Picard's job? Um, And how how does every show start? It's to boldly go where no one has gone before. And that is both in a literal sense, in terms of you know traveling through the universe, but also in a euphemistic sense, in terms of uncovering ideas that others haven't uncovered before. And that, in the Star Trek universe, has intrinsic value. So uh, connecting this to our conversation earlier about the value of economic output, you see, society arbitrarily decides, after a certain level of technological sophistication, Society arbitrarily decides what has economic value. Uh, We decided a while back that aluminum was very hard to extract and therefore it was the most valuable metal. We then developed methodologies that uh, allowed us to refine and extract aluminum at very inexpensive rates. uh, And then it suddenly became the the stuff that, you know, we, we, we throw away utensils made of aluminum thinking nothing of it. But the Washington Monument is still capped with aluminum, which at that time, at the time of the construction of the Washington Monument, was considered more valuable than gold. So what has value changes over time. But the Star Trek universe tells us that 
it is possible to imagine a future in which um, things that we don't uh, you know, consider today to, to have intrinsic economic value can have value and can be enough to sustain um, a society. Now, of course, that's a show and we're living in reality. Those are ideas and those are aspirational. But I think there's something there. Uh, I do like that future. I do like a future where we are free to learn and where there is an inherent intrinsic drive to explore and to expand our boundaries, both in the physical realm and in the intellectual realm. That was beautiful. Join us next week when Amir and I start our new Star Trek podcast. <laughs> That'd probably be a pretty good podcast, I would think. Yeah. Spinoff podcast. I mean, after me and Lorraine's coffee spinoff podcast that's totally happening, uh, we're going to be <laughs> up to our eyeballs in podcasts. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're, we're, we've been going on for a bit, but uh, I want to ask you one more thing before you go. Spark Cognition is doing an event next month, the middle of December, I think the 13th, in Austin, Texas, uh, Time Machine 2017. That's a conference about AI. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So Time Machine, December 13th and 14th, 2017 in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's going to be an incredibly exciting event. It's focused on AI, future technologies. Um, it really covers uh, several broad areas, industry areas that Spark Cognition is focused on. They include energy and industrials. Uh, it also includes aviation and financial services. We're going to have some absolutely top-end speakers um, showing up for this event. Uh, for example, General John Allen, four-star U.S. Marine Corps retired general who's on our board as our executive board member. He was uh, the commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, 40-year um, distinguished military career. Uh, he's going to be a speaker, the chief technology officer of the Boeing Company, which is a partner of ours, um, Dr. Greg Heislip. He's going to be speaking. And uh, professors uh, from topics uh, you know, involving ethics and policy um, in artificial intelligence implementations to just the technical um, potential and technologies that are coming uh, soon um, you know, to, to clients and to industry. Uh, there'll be all sorts of technical explorations. So it's going to be very exciting. It's our first annual conference, and uh, I'm speaking there also. Uh, we think it's just going to be a fantastic uh, event. And the reason why I think it looks suspiciously, uh, suspiciously similar to the ETS webpage is because Z Prime is helping us manage the uh, manage that web presence. Amir, what uh, for people who want to attend this event? What should they come prepared to do? What 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 is the ideal attendee for this event? Well, I mean, I think uh, at, at the top level, I would say just come with an open mind. Um, if you are in the financial services uh, industry, if you are in government or military, if you are working for a defense contractor in aviation, in energy and industry. Uh, and you want to figure out how artificial intelligence can make a difference, uh, whether it's a, you know, a tactical concern around today's top line and today's bottom line, um, predicting some sort of uh, strange failure mode, making your equipment more efficient. Whatever it is, just come with an open mind. We've solved a huge number of problems for close to 100 of the world's largest companies. 
the people at this conference are some of the brightest minds in artificial intelligence, in in policy and strategy and, and business implementations. And I think you'll have an absolutely tremendous time. You'll learn a lot and you'll network with people that really know their stuff. But we're going to make sure that Aaron attends. So you got to go, Aaron. Okay. For more information or if you want to register for Time Machine 2017, go to timemachine.ai. It's a nice URL. You got .ai on an AI conference. We're going to leave it there. Uh, it's been a great conversation, but we've unfortunately reached the end of our time. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Christine. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. Looking forward to your Star Trek podcast. I'm excited. Oh, it's it's going to be great. We're going to break down trouble with tribbles on the next episode. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Dylan. I'm a little upset. I didn't really get to make fun of Christine today. I guess it's Friday afternoon, and I spent all week trying to make fun of her, so I'm sorry, podcast listeners, that I, I missed the boat on this one. I mean, you had the perfect opportunity, Aaron. We were sitting there talking about how long people had worked in the industry, and it was it was perfect opportunity for you, and you, you, just, you just blew it. I know. I thought about it. I really did, Christine. And I, you said it and I was like, okay, this is it. This is the time. Christine just teed me up and then I blew it. I just blew yep. it. I just, I'll make fun of Christine because she, during a meeting today, she was like, yeah, I really like to, I really like to read sci-fi, but she hasn't read Philip K. Dick. She hasn't read any of the John Carter books. So she's like, I, I don't know, but man. Also, Christine was at a conference about cloud technologies, and she ate too much ice cream before she went on stage, and then she her mouth was numb while she was trying to moderate a panel. So there's a <sighs> tidbit fitted in there. I'm, I'm easy to make fun of. I know. That's actually really funny. Well, uh, thank and Amir, thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great to have you. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Don't forget, if you want to check out Amir's book. It's called The Sentient Machine. I know it's on Simon & Schuster. I'm pretty sure it's also on Amazon, but it's wherever you can find books. Where I, I, I don't, I'm a millennial, so I don't know where that is. Well, millennials do read books. It's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and everywhere else. Well, millennials do read books, but we, we, read, them on, we, we read them on our devices. We're a, devi we're a device-driven people. Uh, that'll do it for us today at Z Prime on the Grid. As always, if you want to find some of our research, it's on etsinsights.com. If you're interested in signing up for ETS18, that's at ets18.co. That's ets18.co. Are you going to come to ETS, Amir? Most likely I will. I, I attended last year. It was an absolute blast, and I will absolutely try to make it again. Yeah. Hope to see you there. My name is Dylan. Thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time. Bye.